Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. For those who might be taking this journey with us for the first time, we're speaking with artists for whom making music is as natural as breathing. Some of them are the sons and daughters of music stars. Some of them grew up in homes surrounded by family music makers. Some of them began making music when they were so young that they can hardly remember a time when music wasn't in their lives. But all of them are children of song. I'm Brad Newman, the producer of this series, and today I'll be doing a little double duty, taking on the hosting chores for what should be a very entertaining episode. We're bringing this to you from our podcast studios in Midtown Manhattan. Rick Buser is our engineer. So today's guest began making music when she was just four years old, the youngest of seven. When she wasn't helping out on the farm, she was playing with her brothers and sisters in local honky-tonks, rodeos, church functions, nursing homes, you name it. She's had 14 top 20 country hits, five number one country singles, including Born to Fly, Suds in the Bucket, and A Little Bit Stronger. I don't know if she would like this description of her, but I tell you, I think she's a very determined, she's a very driven artist, and uh, it's something that I really appreciate. She's a multi-platinum entertainer who often makes it look very easy. She's just released her eighth studio album, Words, which has been described as a little bluegrass, a little pop, and a whole lot of country. Hours after its release, it rose to number one on the iTunes country chart. Not a bad start for an album that she backed herself and released on her own record label. She's got a gorgeous voice. I've been listening to her a bunch over the last few days, and i got to tell you, she's about as pure of country music that you can, you're going to hear, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we're excited to have the one and only Sarah Evans on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Sarah uh, is here also with her guitarist, Brent Wilson, who will be helping us along the way, and uh, her sister, Leslie Lyons, who we'll hear from a little later. Take me back a little bit. Um, give me a sense of, of what it was like to grow up on the Evans farm. <laughs> um, well, it was an incredibly idyllic childhood. We um, are from a small town in central Missouri called New Franklin, and we lived about 15 minutes outside of town on a farm that, you know, started out as, as my mom's dream. She always wanted to have a bunch of kids and um, live on the, you know, picture-perfect farm with the big farmhouse. And um, she is absolutely where my drive comes from. She has, you know, the best work ethic of any human being I've ever known. So um, when I was four years old, and I'm actually not the youngest of seven. I'm the third oldest. Oh, are you? I'm yes. sorry. No, that's okay. I got my I got my. Oh, no, I look wrong. the youngest. That's why you said that. There you go. There <laughs> um, you go. Let's go with that. But um, my two older brothers and I and my parents um, moved out to this farm. And, uh, you know, our mother and father just made it incredible. And it was over 400 acres. And so... That's the earliest memory for me of, of my childhood is, you know, getting out there to the farm. But music was very present. I mean, yeah, that's, that's so, a sense that I got. I mean, maybe that's why I felt like you were the youngest. But, like, I mean, it, you know, you're four, and, and there's already – the music is, is filling the house. And, and, and did mm -hmm. that come from your mom, or was that, was that your father? Um, I know your grandfather had an awful big influence. Yeah, so my our dad has an amazing voice. He's, he's a great singer, and our mom also has a, a good voice, but she's definitely natural with music. And neither of them ever, you know, performed or anything like that, but they just were music lovers. So after we got settled on the farm and, and you know, we we got everything set up, my brother started taking guitar lessons, and... I would sing along with them, and that's when my parents, you know, realized that I had this 
great singing voice. And um, in my mom's mind, you know, she was like, well, we need to get them working and <laughs> ma- have them start a band. And so she called people that she knew around the area and put musicians around us, and we formed the Evans Family Band. And so I was four or five years old when I got my first paycheck. Wow. And you, and they really, you played everywhere. I mean, literally all mm-hmm. over the county. Um, and, and what kinds of songs were you singing back then? We were doing straight country covers um, and some bluegrass. Yeah. You know, we would learn, we, we would um, get booked at some bluegrass festivals, so we would have to learn some of those songs, but it was mostly just whatever was popular on country radio. Um, my mom would buy the record, bring it home, and she would make us practice until we learned it. And then we would get together with the band and have practice with them, and then we'd go out and play shows. I must have been kind of startling for the audience to see this little five-year-old. I mean, what what, what to expect, you know, from a five-year-old? Could, could yeah. she, you're almost, like, happy if she, she remembered all the words all the way through. Can you yeah. give us a little taste of what, what we might have heard back then? Well, when I first started, um, I, I remember some of the earliest songs. Um, Maybe the first song I, re- I remember learning and performing was Behind Closed Doors. Um, you remember that song? Um, I don't know who, I can't remember who sang it, and you don't have to play it if you okay. don't want to. It was, um, you know, a hilarious song for a five-year-old to be singing or six-year-old to be singing because it's like talking about, you know, having sex. during. Oh, like, so when we get behind closed doors. Then she lets her hair hang down And she makes me proud that I'm a man Oh, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors <laughs> I mean, seriously, what What were they thinking? What were they thinking? And then another one was um, House of the Rising Sun, which is about sure. prostitutes. Oh, boy. And I mean, who came up with this song list? This wasn't Mom and Dad, was it? Yeah, Mom and Dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, sleeping single in a double bed. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. You um, can eat crackers in my bed anytime. I did a lot of Barbara Mandrell songs. But, you know, also, um, you know, back then, you know, it, it's tough to farm. You know, and it's, you know, mm-hmm. you guys are raising, from what I read, corn, beans, tobacco, and livestock. There's lots of chores mm-hmm. that had to be done. Did they get you out there, and were there rules that, you you know, they needed you to work? I mean, there was a reason why people had seven kids in their family, because oh, yeah, we you needed the, the hands. Oh, absolutely, we worked on the farm nonstop. And, in fact, uh, there are two boys and then five girls, so I'm the oldest girl, and then Leslie's next, and... Then Ashley, and then Aaron, and then Alex. But Leslie and Ashley and I um, worked the most, I would say. I mean, we... <laughs> Wait a we, minute. We don't have the whole family and we here. Worked, you, is I that mean, true? The boys would tell you that we worked harder than they did, for sure. Well, yeah, because I think, you know, it was a little bit later that we started farming tobacco. And so mm-hmm. they were older, so we were like... You Still know, home. Yeah. It's like, get up. Go pull plants, you know. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we set tobacco until dark. Yeah. And then, you know, come in and eat supper at 930 at night. But, yeah, it was a, I mean, it was an awesome way to grow up because it did teach us a lot about hard work and the value of money and the value of hard work. I mean, to this day, I think the worst character trait that anyone can have is to be lazy and, you know, not do all they can do to make their life great and you know but have the laundry done and the dishes done and all that we were taught that but the parents you know from from what i also read is you know they didn't have much and mm-hmm. and they really relied i mean they they it seemed like they supported your talent but they also relied on it to bring some food on the table right yeah we would go and play like the missouri state fair and we would get handed 4 or 500 bucks and that definitely went to the family fund, family right. farm fund. Yeah. Yep. Um, I know I didn't get in it. Any right. I'll I, I tell you what, your, uh, your granddaddy, he taught you about the Opry, and, and as you were developing as a family band, what kind of artists were you drawn to? I, 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 know, I know Reba and Dolly were, were among them, mm-hmm. but, you know, 
were they your strongest influence as you were starting to develop as an artist? Yeah, when you're a little kid, I mean, you absolutely idolize who you are hearing on the radio. So um, my Papa Floyd had all every album of Live at the Grand Ole Opry. So he would play those all the time. And then as I got older, I became so interested in them. Most of those artists were even before my time. It was like Kitty Wells and... Um, you know, Hank Williams Sr. and that mm. those kind of artists, like from the 50s and 60s. But absolutely idolized Dolly Parton, um, Tammy Wynette, Loretta Lynn, Barbara Mandrell, the Mandrell sisters. They mm. had a TV show mm-hmm. that we just loved. And I was Barbara, of course. And mm-hmm. Leslie was... Arlene. Arlene. Mm-hmm. And Ashley was Louise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we learned every one of those songs that we could. Um, but I also loved pop artists as well. I remember we had a Donna Summers record. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget just seeing that, that album sitting on our piano and staring at it and listening to all of her songs. And I think part of the, the greatest form of flattery is is really imitating some of those artists. Mm-hmm. I hear you do a pretty mean Reba imitation. Oh, yeah. And you know, let, let's hear a little bit of that. Okay. This is, um, yeah, one of the songs that I covered in, when I was a teenager in bar bands. And, um, yeah, I'll try to sing the most like Reba that I can. <laughs> and maybe I'll do a little, a little more after this one. Where were you when I could have loved you? Kathy's clown. That was the best. I want your love more and more. I want. I can't. Do it. It's yeah. too early in the day. <laughs> but you know, she would like take her notes and just like swirl, chew on them, chew on them mm, and yeah. just you know, there's nobody like Reba. You know, when you play, you know, honky tonks and nursing homes, and, and you know, it's, it's, they're not the easiest venues, you know. But what do you think you learned from from playing those kind of gigs back there? I learned how to perform in any situation, um, anywhere, at any time, and in front of anyone. You know, so. Um, our parents hired this manager that we had for a while, and um, he was like a taskmaster, and he was so like mean and strict, and um, he sort of treated us like we worked for him, like we were like slave labor or something, and uh, <laughs> we hated him <laughs> so much. But you know, he he really like was was so strict and adamant about having a great show and sounding great and performing great and being as professional as we could, even though we were amateur musicians and children. What, what is interesting, though, is I, I you know, my, my mother got me in community theater when I was a kid. And, and I got to tell you, I had one of those type of directors, too, is and it is tough and you go through it, but you do learn the notes and you know what it takes to perform. It's funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're a kid and you're four or five years old and you do hear what pops for the audience, it, it, it makes a sort of mark on you, right? That that you, you never miss for the rest of your life. Would you agree with that? Yeah, because it's really hard work. And it, Brent, you grew up on stage too. Haven't you been performing since you were a kid? Yes. Very, in, in a family very, band? Very similar story, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so it's like... And I and all three of my children are musical, and I really kind of regret that they haven't grown up on stage. Like they've grown up on the road with me, but they haven't grown up, you know, entertaining people and toiling so through the ranks. You know, yeah. So they're gonna um, not be as seasoned as I was when I got my record deal. But when when you grow up doing that, and you're playing four hour gigs at an Eagles Lodge or a dance hall. And you start at 9 o'clock at night, and you end at 1 a.m. And 
you play, you know, four 45-minute sets. It's very hard work. Oh, it is, but it's it's like that 10,000-hour rule, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but, you know, it's this idea that if you practice and practice and practice and put the time in, you do become expert at it. I mean, those yeah. hours on stage that you accumulated at such an early age, by the time you were 19, you really did have something to show. Yeah, and, and I think that's what has always set me apart in my career in that people... Um, see that in me that I'm really and truly authentic and there are other women in country music that that have it and ha- sort of have the whole package meaning the personality to go with it and like the I always call it sort of old-fashioned country humor um, Reba has that Dolly Parton has that you know Loretta Lynn definitely has that and I have it and it's because I'm the real deal I really did grow up on a farm in the country and I grew up on stage singing country music and having to talk to the audience, you know, when I'm seven years old and, you, and, and say, you how's suffered. everybody doing tonight? You know? Yeah, I mean, you suffered a little bit. You had to mm-hmm. figure out, you had to get people to notice you, mm-hmm. to look at you. Yeah. Uh, when you were 11 years old, your, your father took you to Nashville where you recorded this. Take a listen. What does a nice girl do? Again, it's sort of like this, this uh, you know, what you were talking about before, the kind of song list that they, they had you play. Um, but it's, it's funny, you got a taste of it early mm-hmm. and got you under the mic. What did you think of that big town, big little town at that age? Oh, my gosh. Well, actually, it wasn't my father that brought me to Nashville. It was the man, the manager I was telling oh, you about, the, the manager. taskmaster. Some more, some more bad information in my research. No, I'm sorry okay. about that. <clears throat> I mean, I could be wrong, but no. My I brothers and I, my brothers that. and I, uh, came to Nashville with him, mm-hmm. and he found this record label that, like, you know, the typical story. We paid them a bunch of money to sure. go in the studio, and we recorded two songs. Um, what does a nice girl do in the meantime? And then the other one was called um, "Longest Title in the World." I'm going to be the only female fiddle player in Charlie Daniels' band. <laughs> and I listened to that, too. But I never, I didn't play the fiddle, and I've never learned how to play the fiddle. So I don't know why I recorded that song. But um, that made a huge impression on me because I learned right away that this business is tough and can be really corrupt, you know, at times. Because he just, like, took our money. I don't even think we got any records. Maybe we got a box full of them yeah so, so you kind of go back and forth and you're you're in and out of nashville but finally at 19 i think i think you know you you tried college out but you really knew what you wanted to mm-hmm. do and so you land in in nashville and and that's when you start writing your own songs mm-hmm. what kind of stuff were you writing back then um i mean some of it was was uh ultra country because when when Matt and I moved to Nashville, um, we had had a, a guy from Missouri that wanted to invest in me and mm-hmm. in my career. And he was a millionaire. And um, so he had asked Matt and I to write songs for him. And he signed us to this little publishing deal. And he said, look, I'll, I'll pay you 400 bucks a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you guys write songs and... Um, he said, but you need to go have a lawyer look at it, at this deal. So we got a recommendation from someone and went to see a lady named Brenner Lackey. And um, she kind of drafted up this three-year publishing deal or whatever. And when that deal was finished, I went back to see her. And in the meantime, she had gotten married to a song plugger at Sony Tree Publishing. And she said, and she she said, I'm thinking about getting into music law and maybe even into management. Um, so send me some of your stuff. Well, so the stuff that that Matt and I had written and that I had written by myself and recorded, um, I feel like it was pretty good. But it was definitely the beginning of my writing. So I was I was learning and trying to figure out, you know, who I was going to be as an artist. Like once I got my record deal. Because I just I knew I would get a record deal. I just have always known that. 
It's just a matter of when right. and with what label. And 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 then you you end up getting through that in, involvement with her. You start doing a bunch of demos mm-hmm. for songwriters all over Nashville, yep. and that. <clears throat> You know, that can feel like a thankless kind of job, but you got to meet all these people, right? Well, and it was a way of of getting um, my voice on tape to send to people, and I was getting paid for it. So, I mean, I was so busy. I became the hottest demo singer in town. Like, everybody was calling to hire me um, to sing their, you know, so a songwriter writes a song, he hires me. I go sing the song, and then they pitch it to signed acts. And so that really helped um, word spread around Nashville about me. Have right. you heard this new singer, Sarah Evans? She's really country. Um, so yeah, that was that was awesome. And I was getting paid seventy bucks a song. So there were nights where I would go in and cut five songs. And that's not bad. It was that's good it money was awesome. back there. Yeah. And that's considering really, I was the yeah. only one working. And it led to your your big break, where you know Harlan Howard, the great Harlan Howard, ends up wanting to to do a song, and and kind of pitch it around, uh, called "I've Got a Tiger by the Tail," mm-hmm. and unbeknownst to you, he's actually outside while you're recording it, and you come outside. What was that interaction like? Well, I walked out, and um, Brenner and John, my Brenner, my manager, who ended up managing me for years and years through. All, almost all of my career at RCA, um, she and her husband were standing there, and they said, Sarah, we have someone that we would like for you to meet. This is Harlan Howard. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I just acted like a freak. And Harlan Howard, um, who uh, actually, you know, wrote some amazing songs, obviously, for, you know, Patsy I called Klein, the Pizzas, yeah. um, the Judds he, he mm-hmm. wrote for. I mean. Yeah, he's one of the, the most um, famous songwriters in, in country music. And. You know, so anybody who knows anything about country music has heard the name Harlan Howard. He was in the studio, and he said, "Damn, girl!" Because at this time he was in his late seventies, probably, mm-hmm. and he was um, he cussed all the time, and he smoked all the time, and he was just you know typical what you would imagine. Damn, girl, you remind me of Loretta Lynn when she first moved to town. Which I was like, you know, I can't even believe I'm talking to someone who knew Loretta Lynn when she moved to town. Wow. So he literally got on the telephone and called Renee Bell, who was head of A&R at RCA Records, and said, you got to meet with this little gal. I've just been in the studio with her, and she's great. And so the next week I had lunch with Renee. The next week I was in front of Joe Galani singing for, for him in his office, and that night he signed me to Seven Album Deal. Amazing. So Amazing. Harlan Howard um, will forever just be, you know, one of my heroes. And he was so instrumental. If he had not been there that night and had not called Renee, um, you know, we might not be sitting here now. Wow. Can we can we hear a little bit of I Got a Tiger by the Tail? Yeah, so they were wanting to pitch this to Patty Loveless. And so, <clears throat> you know, I, I sound a lot like her. And so we went in and did this demo and then... When I got my record deal, I ended up putting this on my first album instead of giving it to Patty. I'm like, screw that. I want Tiger by the Tail. (laughs) I've got a tiger by the tail, it's plain to see. I won't be much when you get through with me. Well, I'm a losing weight and a turning mighty pale. It looks like I've got a tiger by the tail. Awesome. And, and of course, that first album was Three Chords and the Truth, which is just a, such a quintessential Harlan Howard kind of phrase, yes. uh, a look toward country. I mean, he really saw you as this wonderful throwback, you know, mm-hmm. Loretta Lynn. And in that first album really caught the attention of, of a lot of amazing country music artists, including George Jones, who asked you to open up for him at the Ryman. Now, mm-hmm. do you have a George Jones story? Because this guy, I mean, we've heard wonderful George Jones <laughs> stories from Lori Morgan, people that have been on the podcast. What's your favorite George Jones story? Um, so definitely opening up for him. Um, but when I went in the studio to make my second record, No Place That Far, there was a song called Cupid that I wrote. And, you know, I asked George Jones to come in and 
sing harmony with me on it. And it sounds a lot like Tiger by the Tail. It's real it's it's real Buck Owens and George Jones kind of vibe. And um my experience with him that day in the studio was that he was incredibly professional and you know, here he is in his sixties probably at that time and working really hard and, and still singing great and putting a, an incredible harmony. Oh, he on belts Cupid. it out, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and he did exactly what I wanted him to do. You know, it's like, tell Cupid not to point that thing at me. You know, and I was just like, ah! And um, then, you know, I, I was around him a few more times. Like, I think I went to a party at his house once. But I, I don't have any wild stories about him. He was just an amazing artist but i would think that when you're you know you're finally catching your footing you know you, you've struggled a little bit and and the doors open and you can kind of see that you're getting on the road that mixing with somebody like that country music royalty it, it, it is some validation right yes absolutely and I, that's what three three chords and the truth did for me really um it's funny how people in events in your life kind of shape your decisions and those decisions you know, can change your life. But so meeting Harlan Howard and then having Harlan talk about how country I was and me recording Tiger by the Tail and then how that went all around town. And so the buzz about me was that I was so country, you know, almost like hillbilly country. And so that caused me to think, well, maybe that's that's where I need to stay because I can sing everything. I can sing pop and blues and you know, um, but I thought maybe that's where I need to land and kind of make that my niche. So then I went even further and decided to have Pete Anderson produce my first album. He is Dwight Yoakam's producer and guitar player. And so I went out to L.A. and that first record um, was really like a female Dwight Yoakam, kind of hillbilly, West Coast sounding. That's why it sounds great. It's great. Thank you. I mean, I I don't want to hear a little bit of Three Chords in the Truth if we can get a little bit of that. All right. This was the first song I ever wrote with Amy Mayo, who is now a hugely successful country writer. I wrote it with Amy Mayo and Ron Harbin. And... uh, she called me this that morning and left me a message and said, Hey, Sarah, this is Amy. I was just going to go by and get me some chicken biscuits, and I wonder if you want me to bring you one. Because she's from Alabama. She's so country. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, how is writing appointment going to go? Like, <laughs> she is a hick. Right. And we get there, and she's just, like, this brilliant person. But she talks like this. and. Um, so we wrote Three Chords and the Truth, and this is a quote from Harlan Howard that says, the key to the perfect country song is simple. It's just three chords and the truth. All right. So do you want a verse and a chorus? Or do yeah, you just, let's okay. do that. You remember the verse? Yeah. I hope I, I do. So. <laughs> On a highway bound for nowhere, I ran my fingers through my tangled hair as I pulled in for another tank of freedom. a hundred miles behind me and a million more to go I was trying to put some distance between us I turned on the radio and a voice came over sweet and low and I didn't know the tears were gonna stop What amazed me even more is I'd never heard that song before, but somehow I knew each word by heart, and I don't know.
with three chords and the truth. You're listening to Children of Song, and we are with the wonderful Sarah Evans this morning. Um, let's talk about what it was like the first time you had a song go to number one. Hmm. You were with one of my favorites, Vince Gill. Yes. Um, Vince and I performed together before I even signed my record deal or had a record out. I was uh, just newly signed, and, and they were doing a Buck Owens tribute on the CMA Awards. And um, it was me and Vince Gill and a couple of other people. And so Vince sang Tiger by the Tail. Tiger by the Tail is so, like, in my life. Right. <laughs> and I threw the high harmony on there with him. And he was like, you know, oh, my gosh. So then Vince asked me to come in and sing harmony on his next album, which was just, you know, like I'm saying. I mean, the fact that that word had gotten around town about me was just so helpful in my career because people were like, you know, taking me really seriously as an artist and not just a new girl singer that had come to town, you know. So then I thought that Vince should return the favor and uh, sing on No Place That Far. Mm-hmm. And he's such an awesome guy. And he, every time he comes in to sing on any of my records, he puts even more than I asked him to on it. So he did a couple of step-out lines, which put me in the the duet category. So it was nominated for duet and all that. But it, yeah, became my first number one. He, he, you know, he talked about harmony. We did an episode with him and his daughter Jenny, and I mean, he's an emotional guy too. I mean, he must have cried like five times. Really? During, no, I'm serious. And like, you know, big tears too. Wow. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, he's amazing. <laughs> but he talked about harmony and and how he really. The whole point was to support the singer. I mean, you guys sound so wonderful together. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about harmony and growing up, mm-hmm. and and and. Because it's it's is it something that you can learn or is it something you're kind of born with some of that because he well, really kind of fits so easy for him. Yeah, people always ask me, and especially about uh, my daughters who are coming up and wanting to be singers, are singers, and they always say, "Is she taking lessons? Has she had? Have you ever had voice lessons?" They'll say that to me, and I'm like, "Hell no!" <laughs> I mean, because it's it's something you're born with. It's totally natural and. Um, these guys will tell you that harmony is harmony is something that you either really get it or you don't. And, um, you know, it, there are a lot of singers who really don't understand harmony and what harmony needs to be and how you have to stay, you know, on the third part or the fifth part, you know, and you just, it, it's like... Um, birds, you know, flying together and following this pattern that is just unspoken. You you just know it. You know where you need to go and what you need to do. And I've always been so lucky because I have my sisters and they know exactly what I'm going to do. And I know exactly what they're going to do. We no. grew up singing three-part harmony. And so my sisters always come in and sing on the records and We've created some what I think are just incredibly beautiful harmony parts, and they sound so much like me, but they're each a little different. Like Leslie's always taken the low part, even though she can sing, you know, as high as anybody in the world. But she just has such a great tone down there. You do, yeah. You, do. you just hit that sweet spot. Yeah. Can we hear a little bit of "No Place That Far"? Oh, sure. Do you Let's know hear that, a little bit of that. <clears throat> So this is a song that I co-wrote with two guys that I ended up having like three number one records with. So we've always had really good success. And um, every time I write a song with them, I go away hating it. And then when they send me the demo, um, then I'm like, oh, my God, this is a hit. Why did I hate this? (laughs) It happens every time. should trust them more. I really should. Um, If I had to run If I had to crawl If I had to swim a hundred rivers Just to climb a thousand walls All we 
myself on hiring and having the best singers and musicians um, in my band and like just sitting here listening to y'all and doing this I'm probably going to start crying like Vince Gill but it's really magical it really is and Brent's with, been with me how long? 10 years 10 years um, gosh it's unbelievable I know <laughs> and uh, you know, you just know it. You absolutely know it when you have found those that are just gifted. I mean, you know. Well, it gives you confidence too, doesn't it? You oh, know, yeah. because I mean, listen. I mean, we you, you carry uh, sure a certain amount of ego because you got to be able to do this. But boy, it sure helps when you have people kind of propping you up. It's always been about the music for me. I've never had a, a show where I've had like a ton of production and. You know, all the smoke and lights and, you know, smoke and mirrors, really. It's always been about the music. And and my brother Matt is the one who hires and finds the players and takes care of all that side of it for me. And, um, you know, we truly are known around Nashville and in our genre as having one of the best road bands out there. Um, everybody who watches our shows, you know, side stage, anybody else who's out there on the show is always blown away by my band. So that makes me really proud. When we looked at the new album here, um, you also, what I really appreciated was you, you also feature one of uh, another number one song that you had, um, a little bit stronger, mm -hmm. an acoustic version of it. It's interesting. Why did you want to go back to that? And it is such a sweet, beautiful song. I mean... Definitely worth going back to, but yeah. I kind of like that you are moving forward, but you still grab a little bit of your past with you. And yeah. Sounds like you haven't taken some of that for granted. That's what I appreciated. I think part of it is just that when you sing a song live every night, you change it so much, and it kind of takes on another life of its own, the live life, and um, you start changing the melody and and... I always say that I wish I could have the same comfortableness and feeling about a song right when I'm first recording it as I do five years later, yeah. you know, um, sure. because you're so used to singing it and you've become a lot more creative with it. So A Little Bit Stronger was such a powerful song, and I've had literally thousands of people tell me that without that song they wouldn't have gotten through their divorce or whatever it was and um so i just thought you know it'd be kind of cool to give them another version of it and so i i took it up a half step and uh changed it a little bit but i i just think it's such a cool song acoustically um Woke up late today and I still feel the sting of the pain But I brush my teeth anyway Got dressed through the mess and put a smile on my face I got a little bit stronger Riding in the car to work and trying to ignore the hurt So I turned on the radio Stupid song made me think of you I listened to it for a minute But then I changed it I'm getting a little bit stronger Just a little bit stronger And I'm done hoping That we could work it out I'm done with how it feels Spinning my wheels Letting you drag my heart around it Oh, I'm done thinking That you could ever change I know my heart will never be the same But I'm telling myself I'll be okay Even on my weakest days I get a little bit stronger Wow. 
sounds so great. You know, I, I got to tell you, I feel really lucky because, you know, hearing it in such a small room like that, it, it's just so, it's amazing. And the thing is, is we can't listen to you in small venues. You're always in these, these bigger venues, and it sounds different. And um, I know that you have, you know, voiced some frustration with the music industry because mm -hmm. you've been in it for a while mm -hmm. and you've played the game and this latest album you finally got to call some of the shots can you can you give us a sense of how you would fix it <clears throat> how i would fix the music industry radio? yeah well, i mean <laughs> where, where do you think it should be because you go down to nashville and everybody loves the bluebird cafe and that's where you hear these artists in this kind of setting yep. and you hear artists talk about how they wish they could play in smaller settings but you can't afford to do it anymore yeah well when i first got my record deal um i completely thought okay i've made it you know i've arrived i'm, I'm gonna be a superstar and I'm going to do exactly what I've been dreaming of all these years and get on a tour bus and go out and <clears throat> play hit records and I'm going to be on the radio. And I had no idea, you know, what it was really like and the hard work that was just about to begin and what we were going to have. I mean, <clears throat> you're literally uh, starting at the bottom with country radio and you're just climbing this mountain and... So you start out and you pick a single and you have a, what's called a radio tour and you literally go and see every radio station in America and it's like on Coal Miner's Daughter when Do, Dewey, Dewey, Do yeah. Little, what was his name? Do. Do? Yeah. Where are we going, Do? And remember they got baloney and never mind. But, um, you know, he, he was the original, you know, radio tour guy. Um, you just have to pedal. You have to pedal yeah. your stuff, and then it, it's and so tiring. We, we went and we did that, but like three chords and the truth really didn't get a, a, a hardly any airplay at country radio. But it received all this critical acclaim. Then going back in for the second album, I knew that you know I needed to go more like kind of down the middle and not so country, not so kind of hillbilly. And they're very particular about what they want. So. You're walking this fine line of, you know, trying to make your own music, but also trying to give them what you think they're going to want. Because you're making this album, you know, six to 12 months out from, you know, when you're going to be giving it to radio. And I'll never forget, I had a single called Fool, I'm a Woman. It's a song that I wrote with Matresa Berg, and <clears throat> it was the second single after No Place That Far. No Place That Far had already been a number one, so I'm like great, I've got some clout now. I've got, you know, surely they'll play this next single. I remember the label calling me and saying, we have some big program directors that they're liking the song, but they don't like it in the verse when you go to that one high note. Um, so it says, uh, and, and that's where I'm drawing the line. Oh, I used to think you were so fine. And we wrote that song. It was kind of influenced by that thing you do. Mm -hmm. And But some programmers didn't like that I went to that note on those verses. So the label literally made me go back in the studio and change that melody to try to appease some of these big program directors. And it pissed me off. And Did it so, work? Did they, did they play? No, they no, still so didn't they play. Still didn't it, play. It, was, it was just a mediocre hit. you know. So it's like... Why would you pander to them in this way? Well, around that time, it really started to get out of control with that. And for No Place That Far, you know, I I did anything and everything that I was asked to do by my label that they were asked to do by country radio. So for anybody to think that I've had 20 or what did you say, four, 14, 14 top 20s, yeah. I've, I've worked my ass off for every single spin that I've ever gotten at country radio. And and country radio has always um, had this love-hate kind of thing with me. They'll give me this humongous hit, and then they won't play the next single. So you never really think that you um, have arrived, that you're, you can never really just get comfortable and go, God, when am I going to be an automatic ad <laughs> at country radio? And they won't do that for everybody 
Why do you think that is? Do you think because there is something about the American culture? We've talked about this. We love to see people fall, and then we like to raise them up again. It's like so they they give you that one hit, then they want to see you struggle again, so that then you can have a comeback. So I think it's it also like you, has... you got to give them the the songs that you don't think you really love in between. Well, it's like, yeah, and it has everything to do with um, the record label's promotion team and what plan they've come up with for that next single. So if they they relax in any way or pull back in any way from pushing that next single as much as they did the previous one, then you're not going to have the same hit that you would have. And then, of course, you know, once everything went digital, back in the day, like of Born to Fly, they put me on a private jet and flew me all over the country visiting radio stations we would stop at three four or five stations a day and i would go in and play them um songs from born to fly and so we had you know huge success with that but then when everything turned digital then there's no more budget for that so we're lucky to like you know then have a tour bus that they'll pay for to take you to visit radio then with a little bit stronger i went in a car you know (laughs) Um, but I did it. They they called and said, we need you for six weeks, three days a week. And so I had to make that choice. You know, am I going to sacrifice my family, leave my children, and go do this? And But the reason I had to do that was because that was sort of the beginning of this bro country phase that we're in now. And, and they were just kind of stopping playing women. Well, now you get to call the shots because it's it's your record label, it's your money being pumped into the into the album. Um, as you'd mentioned, you know your brothers and sisters are working with you on this album. You have your daughter Olivia sings on the um, on the current single Marquee Sign. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this something you want your kids to do when you grow up? Because it is a tough business. You mm-hmm. talk about the early years, and you know, is this something you'd like them to follow you in? Um, yes. Totally, because they're gifted, and I would, I would, I would feel weird if they didn't go into music or entertainment in in some way. Just because that's kind of our life, that's our home, that's what we know. We're all obsessed with music and in movies and great TV shows and books. And all three of my kids are total like, what is it, left or right brain? Yeah, English. You know, none of us can add two plus two. I mean, we're all just like, but, you know, do not have bad grammar around us because we'll make fun of you. Um, And you take them on the road with you. They've always been on the road with me. Um, They all, like, I would have a baby, and then six weeks later, I'd be out on the road with the baby, going everywhere. So, yes, I definitely want them to do music. And my son is a guitar player, and that's, you know, that's his total focus. He's about to be a senior. I know. You wrote a song for him mm-hmm. on this album. I'd like to hear a little bit of that. That uh, I've got a, uh, my oldest is going into high school, and so I was listening to that. I was getting a little, I was getting a little Vince Gill like myself there. We're going to make fun of Vince, uh, yes. I guess, this episode. <laughs> it was actually Olivia's idea to write the song because when we start the album making process, you know, it's like I always pray and ask for, you know, a, a bunch of like, you know, just um, inspiration and song ideas and where should this album go and you know I I always pray that people at at the publishing companies will be sitting at their desk going I have a pitch meeting coming up with Sarah Evans what should I play for her I always pray that they'll go in somewhere deep and find this certain song that pops into their head that they think would just be great for me so Livy said, why don't you write a song about Avery and how he's growing up and what you're feeling about that? Um, and I wrote it with two other moms. So we literally stopped. Like, by the end of that writing session, I looked like death. I mean, <laughs> we cried all day long. And then every time I listened to the work tape, I would cry. Mm. But it, it's called Letting You Go. And um, Let's hear a little bit of yeah. it. See if I can make it through. Brent, we haven't learned this one yet, but it's okay. I'll I'll do it a cappella. The chorus is, uh, um, Loving you is holding you And lifting you up And planting the seeds And then watching you grow And even though it's hard to do 
I'm gonna cry. Hold on. <laughs> you know what made me cry? Because I was like, I wonder if Leslie's sad listening because she has five kids and. Okay, anyway. <clears throat> well, it's truthful. It really is. We said three chords in the truth. There's a lot of truth in this song. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, second half of the chorus. Even though it's hard to do, it's letting you fall and giving you wings so you fly on your own. And part of loving you is letting you go. Mm-hmm. And my favorite line is, because I always like to take things dark. <laughs> That is. That's it. It's it's the back end of that chorus that is hard. Oh my God! And and when I take it dark on the second verse, and I'm a second verse writer, I always seem to write all the second verses in my songs. But it says, um, "All of your life, I prepared you to leave." Damn it, Leslie! (laughs) Now that little boy's all grown up, and it's. Too late for change in my mind, but nobody ever warned me that the years go. Sorry, everybody cries. <clears throat> I'll I'll recite it. See if I can do that. The years go too fast, and there's just no pressing rewind. Cause time is a liar. Pause. Oh my God, I'm Vince Gill. <laughs> Wish I could set the clock on fire, turn it back to yesterday. But it just keeps slipping away, you know. And and it's it's true. I mean, they having children, fast, yeah. having children is hard because it's like this other human being that you love so much that it just terrifies you to think about, you know, anything negative. <laughs> Putting my hand up so I can't see less. <laughs> you know, you you have been at this a long time, and, and 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 you've really had a lot of staying power. What what keeps driving you? Um, I'm very competitive. Um, I love what I do. I feel like I'm really good at what I do, and so, you know, I just I want to have more and more and more and more success with it. And you can define success however you want. You know. Country radio is currently not playing anything but party truck dirt road songs. So this album may not be, you know, on, played on mainstream country radio a lot. But I would say that this is, you know, my most successful album to date because I think it's the best work I've done um in terms of the lyrics, the music on it, the harmonies. I'm so proud of it. So I just want to. It's a little bit of everything too. It yeah. really is a strong album. Words you got to go out there and get it. I mean, it it really is. There's a lot of different different kinds of music on it. There's something mean, for everyone. I mean, that first track, I I really love. It does feel to me like it's you know right out of Justified, the old television show. Oh yeah, that's show. my oh, wheelhouse. My that's that's where I started. Is that kind of singing, that Patty Loveless, mountainy bluegrass way of singing in. Totally my wheelhouse. So you you obviously like that. I do. That kind of singing. I do. Yeah. I like that. Because there's, there's a soulfulness in mm-hmm. there. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's 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 of people who have lived, you know. Yeah. And it's I like that. You know, uh, as we close here, I think it's really fitting, you know, because we talk about your determination and, and your willingness to keep going forward, that your signature song is Born to Fly. As we close, can we can we hear a little bit of that? Totally. I've been telling my dreams to the scarecrow About the places that I'd like to see And I say, friend, do you think I'll ever get there? Oh, but he just stands there smiling back at me So I confess my sins to the preacher About the love I've been praying to find is there a blue-eyed boy in my future? Yeah. And he says, girl, you've got nothing but time. But I say, how do you wait for heaven? And who has that much time? And how do you keep your feet on the ground when you know that you were born?
so, so good. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Sarah Evans, Brent, Leslie. Really Thank a you. pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. This was so fun. It was. Before we let you go, we want to welcome you to the B-Side, Stories from the Road. Here's a chance for us to tell one last story. When she's out on tour, Sarah's been known to play a prank or two. Here's a doozy she played on Brad Paisley more than a few years ago. So what is your favorite road story? And it, 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 it can be backstage, it could be, it could be at a, you know, anything that you did recording an album, but a real story. Um, God, the one that just pops into my head is when we were touring with Brad Paisley, and it was the last show of the tour, and you always play tricks on each other. So um, Audrey, my 12-year-old, was a baby. She was a newborn, and... Um, we went on the bus and we got all this chocolate and we melted it and we like spread it on these diapers and I put something in that made me look pregnant. I was literally, it was so real to life and I put my hair in curlers and I lit a cigarette and I had on denim shorts and these high heeled shoes and I grabbed Audrey and I think I had a beer too. So I had like a beer and a cigarette in one hand and, and had Audrey on my right hip and in the middle of his show, I, I walked out on stage, and they mic'd me up and everything, you know, to prepare for it. And I said, Brad, get off the stage and get over here and help me with these babies. And he was, like, totally shocked. And I I don't think he was happy. <laughs> it doesn't and sound like he would so be. I, and I used my baby like a prop. I laid her down on the stage and I took her diaper off um, or pretended to and I handed him and I showed the crowd. I'm like, you need to help me change her diaper. And it just looked like a poopy diaper. And it was so hilarious. And um, yeah, he didn't respond very well to that. Yeah, I would think the payback would be coming on that one. Yeah, well, he had already paid me back in my show because on on the screens, he made all my pictures fat, like obese pictures. So it was hilarious. It was like me, like in that, you know, sexy pose that I try to do, but I was obese. And, you know, the audience is like dying laughing, and I'm like, what the hell? And then I turn around and I see that. Well, I guess what comes around goes around. Exactly. You know, before we go, one last time, let's let's hear the single on the latest album. Here's Marquis Sign. Okay. I'll start with the verse. I wish you were a pack of cigarettes. Cause you would have come with a warning. Before I let you steal my breath. Would have known how bad you were for me. But people lie, and people trust, and people hide what they're made of. If you would have been a little like a marquee sign, could have saved myself some wasted time from the minute. Yeah, you were only here to break my heart. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, Lee Bryce. His new self-titled album is Turning Heads and sits firmly in country's top ten. He joins us singing his latest hit, Boy. It's a candid conversation we had with Lee as he was recording this latest album. It's a good one you won't want to miss. Children of Song, the podcast that combines live music with great storytelling. Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening. I'm
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.